The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now on Fast, Disney dives. The entertainment giant missing estimates in its latest quarter, even as it added more subscribers than expected. But will the mouse house be able to bounce back? We're digging into the details to find out. Plus, crypto's so-called savior in a cash crunch. How Sam Bankman-Fried went from propping up the industry to needing an investment of his own and what it means for the decentralized currency landscape. And pot at the polls, five states voting on whether to legalize recreational marijuana today. We'll be joined by the CEO of cannabis company Curaleaf to find out how he is prepping for the results. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. On the desk tonight, Carter Worth, Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, and Jeff Mills. And we start off with Disney. The stock is down 6.5% after missing estimates for both earnings and revenue. The company did report a bigger-than-expected increase in subscribers to its streaming service. But average revenue per user was less than expected. The company's conference call is underway. Steve Kovac has been listening in. Steve. Yeah, there. So there's a lot of talk now about missing expectations for these growing DTC losses, despite those uh, growth in the subscribers in the d- direct-to-consumer business. Also, let's just talk about EPS. This was e- uh, Disney's biggest EPS miss since the early 90s, guys, and the revenue miss biggest since August 2019. But back over to direct-to-consumer, Disney Plus subscribers was still a beat. 164 million people are now subscribed to that services. But look, it's the DTC losses that are getting everyone's attention. $1.47 billion worse than expected. CEO Bob Chapek trying to calm fears about that, saying those were actually peak losses for DTC. He also on the call, Chapek laying out three ways to bring those losses down. First of all, the price increase for Disney Plus coming next month, spending less on marketing for Disney Plus, and a better release schedule with their top IP for Marvel, Star Wars, and all the rest. Now, they're going to be raising in about a month for Disney Plus to $10.99 per month for no ads. And the new tier with commercials is going to be the current price, $7.99 per month. And Chapek also saying on the call they have 100 advertisers locked up and ready to go for that launch in a year. Meanwhile, the CFO highlighting strong bookings for domestic parks, expecting a strong holiday quarter there, although Shanghai Disney remains shut down for the time being, Mel. Steve, thanks. Keep us posted on the conference call, Steve Kovac. Um, Here's a question. Should we believe CEO Bob Chapek and look through this? I mean, he says these are peak losses. They are, in fact, adding subscribers. That's a good thing. Guy, do we look through this? So it's a binary yes or no. The answer is no, you shouldn't believe him. And what we're seeing here is exactly what Tom Rogers has been talking about for a long time, but specifically for the last five or six months. And now the divergence between Netflix and Disney is abundantly clear, and Tom's done a great job. So, no, you shouldn't believe them. When you miss on the bot, listen, EPS came in at 30 cents. They missed by 46% on EPS 
and a revenue miss. That's not good. And then, okay, they added subscribers. Problem is, ARPU for Disney Plus was $3.91. Stewart was looking for $4.24. That's not good. The only compelling case you can make now, by the way, Disney was in the D in my dawn trade, which now is becoming dawn of the dead trade. I beat you to that punch because that's exactly what's going on. This is a level we traded down to in March of 2020-ish. So it's got to hold effectively 90 bucks to trade the stock from the long side. That seems like an important milestone, Carter. It is. In fact, it's basically where it was in 2015. So you've got a stock that's done nothing, which is representing major underperformance in the market. But it's also a stock that now is at risk of breaking to and below its June low. So we know the stock market makes a June low, that it breaks that low in October. Disney never made a low in October, and now that prospect is at hand. So now streaming is actually a headwind, a discount. <clears throat> it is. I mean, but what did we just hear? So we heard a couple things about an ad-supported model, and they have 100 advertisers. If there's ever a better company to kind of line them up, I couldn't think of it uh, than Disney here. They have a higher-priced um, tier, so they're going to raise prices. If you look at Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, um, and Hulu, they have more monthly paying subscribers than Netflix does. And I would argue that they have like a far greater reach and a far greater potential. You know, like I cut the cord, okay? And you know how I get my cable? Through Hulu, you know? And I have a, a package there that, what? The guy has no idea what you're talking about. Well, I'm about. just saying that, and I've been no doing that for, for a few years now. So to me, I actually think that to these guys' point, it's gonna break that 90, that's that double bottom from this year. You have to go back to March of 2020, and there's that low during the pandemic, which was 80 bucks. And if you get to the low end, I just don't see a lot of risk guys with any handle on this thing. I'm just telling you, if you start buying it in the high 80s all the way down to the 80, that panic low, and I really do think, again, we can say that estimates are coming down. That was the biggest miss in EPS since the 90s. They missed revenue by 5%. Uh-huh. You know, this headwind, that headwind, whatever. It's still Disney, and if you're buying this thing at some point at 10-year lows, which is what you're going to be doing, right. I think it's probably right. not a uh, no bad opportunity. But you don't have capitulation yet, right? The street yeah. is, st- I mean, the street, one year ago had a $200 price target. Now it's yeah. one but that's going to come. And that's going to come down. Can't we? Yeah. Can't we make the argument though for all of these stocks? We're looking at them as individual names that are reacting to their own specific fundamentals here. And there's been some dispersion, and there's been some basically rotation out of tech and, and media and stuff like that. But the, the capitulation has to come as a monolith. Okay, as the market. And that's why we're not going to bottom this month or last month right. or anything like that. I mean, in large part, the capitulation will happen because of macro concerns, macro headwinds, Jeff. And isn't that sort of what we are waiting at this point? Disney is Disney. Disney has a great moat. Disney has great content. You can make all of these arguments, but Disney still lives in, in the macro environment. And we're still not yet seeing the full impact of a potential slowdown or recession or a tick higher in unemployment on Disney. Are we? seeing it on any companies yet. And that's why I've been talking about this over and over again and, and trying not to overcomplicate the situation. Look, I, you know, I think that leading economic indicators are still trending lower. Earnings have a very high correlation with those indicators. So earnings are con- going to continue to be pressured and that's going to impact companies like Disney and it's going to impact the entire market. So we're not going to find a bottom until that resolves. And I don't think that's going to happen until way into 2023. Uh, inflation is way too high. The Fed is doing what it's going to do. It's just not a 
long-term setup for a market bottom. And I think Carter makes a great point. Look, we've seen that support around 90 to $100. So it's precarious right now, given where it's trading. But you know, if, if I try to take a step back as a longer-term investor and a longer-term holder of the stock, you know, I look at 17, 18 times 2023 earnings, maybe 15 times 2024 earnings. Sure, maybe those come down a bit, given the macro headwinds we're talking about. But I think it's a reasonable value here. And in, in just thinking about what Dan's talking about, you know, where are we relative to peak losses in DTC? You have the ad tier that's going to at least help ARPU, uh, increase subscription fees. These are important overall, but they're particularly important in this market. I keep pounding the table on profitability, and that's what this market wants. So I think the long-term focus there is very good. Uh, I think overall content spend and streaming is probably coming down, so it makes the economics more rational. Again, going out a number of quarters, um, but I think the focus on making sure that streaming becomes net cash flow positive uh, is really important, but they're going to have to show the market that they can do that, You know, finally start paying a dividend, things of that nature. So again, we still hold the stock, um, but yeah, they're they're in a messy transition point here as they look for profitability in the streaming space. Um, Disney shares, by the way, in the after-hour session, hitting after-hour session lows right now, down by about eight uh, and a quarter percent. Uh, there's some headlines coming out now. The CFO is saying um, that Disney Plus core subscriber growth will accelerate in fiscal Q2, largely driven by international markets. And keep in mind, international markets, in large part, are less profitable than the domestic markets in terms of subscribers. So that's that's going to be an issue. That is, as you, I mean, you brought up Tom Rogers. He, he keeps hitting on this notion that hot star particularly in India, it is much less profitable than the subscriber that subscribes here in the United States. Right. So you can have astronomical numbers, but it's mm -hmm. not doesn't make it necessarily profitable numbers. That's what we're I mean, to a large extent, that's playing out right before our very eyes. Right. And Tom has said, and I've said it as well, that Disney Plus is a bit of a lost leader. That's fine. Then treat it as such. I mean, this is still a media and park story, and they didn't do particularly well on either one of those either. So look, to Dan's point, if you're in this for the long haul, I don't think you're going to obliterate yourself buying Disney around 90 bucks, understanding it could trade down to 82, 83. If you're trading the stock, you traded against that low we saw back in March of 2020 to Carter Braxton's worth point. Uh, the CFO is also saying that uh, subscribers for Hotstar will likely decline. Uh, because of the loss of the Indian Premier League and also that ESPN advertising revenue in Q4 was down 23 percent year on year. So there's some of the drips and drabs coming out of the conference call right now. The stock uh, is now down eight and a half percent. For more on Disney's earnings, let's bring in CNBC contributor Jim Stewart. He's a New York Times columnist. He also wrote the book Disney War. Uh, Jim, great to have you with us. What do you what do you make no, of this thanks. quarter? Well, it's not good news. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, the, the big headline, obviously, is the, the huge losses at, at uh, the direct-to-consumer unit. I mean, they're talking about a profit, maybe, in 2024. By the way, I noticed a caveat in the earnings release saying, assuming there's no meaningful deterioration in the economic situation, which there very well might be. And when they say a profit, they don't say how much of a profit. I mean, we're never going to see the incredible profit margins they had in the glory days of cable when ESPN was just hauling in the profits for them. Uh, so that that ballooning loss at DTC is, I think, going to be a huge worry to investors. I mean, where does this end? Where do you think it ends? Or do you think that Bob Chapek slugs along and, and he really believes that th these are peak losses here? I mean, in the after our session, Jim, Disney has lost $20 billion already. It's down 10% no, right now. It's, it's, it's an amazing. astonishing decline. 
Well, we're hearing more in the conference call about some of the deterioration in the in the linear networks, particularly ESPN. You know, the cord cutting, the loss of ad revenue there. That is a problem they're continuing to face while they try to do this big pivot. The big question has always been, you know, where is the pot of gold and when is there a pot of gold in the in the streaming universe? And investors are quickly souring on this whole scenario. I think the idea has always been that sooner or later we're going to get down to three or maybe four very large survivors here and that they will begin to make money by ratcheting up the subscription fees. But Disney is not showing any progress there. I mean, the cost of keeping these subscribers, of coming up with blockbuster hits, of paying billions of dollars in programming costs to keep the fresh material coming that's going to attract people and keep them from turning this stuff off is enormous. And we're not seeing any growth in their subscriber fees. I mean, the U.S. domestic average um, you know, revenue for Disney went down. You know, Yes, they did have an impressive growth in subscribers, but the bigger they get, the more they're losing. I mean, th that that is a worrisome trend. I and mean, at some point, those numbers have to start turning around. And we haven't seen it yet. Hey, Jim, it's Jeff Mills. You mentioned ESPN, yeah. and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Obviously, the competition for sports is heating up, and it's such a valuable franchise. But how do they go about trying to monetize that and really make that a growth engine for the business? I know they've talked about sports betting and all these things. But you know, in, in your view, how do they navigate what seems like a really important growth area with a ton of competition around it? I think this is a, a huge problem for them. I mean, they they had a you know quasi monopoly in ESPN for so long, and now suddenly some people with really deep pockets—Apple, Amazon, maybe Netflix—they're they're moving into this space. I mean, there's no good news when suddenly you you go from like one or two bidders for these things to four or five with plenty of money to put out there. I think the Disney strategy we're seeing a little bit from the Premier League decision is they are going to go for the high margin. Uh, sports events. I, I don't think they can keep the, you know, the sort of quasi-monopoly they've had. I don't know that anyone's going to be able to afford that. You see it eroding with some of some of the NFL stuff, Major League Baseball, but they're going to have to carefully pick their shots for the marquee, uh, for the marquee events that really bring in the subscribers and for which they can charge uh, premium uh, fees. And then really, they're just going to have to pay up for those. But I, I don't see it as a as a promising growth area. I mean, sports may end up being a lost leader. I mean, the great thing about sports, in a way, is that people who love it are fanatics, and they will pay those subscriber fees to get those live, real-time sporting events. But right. everybody has figured that out, and this is not good news for Disney. Yep. Uh, Jim, thanks for your take. We appreciate it. Sure. Jim Stewart of the New York Times. Um, what had been... The good part of Disney, a really high growth part of Disney, is now the huge sort of weight on Disney. This is a growth. This is a growth at any cost business in an environment where investors do not want that. That's a problem, right? And if that becomes an anchor, which has effectively become, you're going to be punished for it in terms of the stock price, which we're seeing before our very eyes. And if you're very good at it, like Netflix has proven to be albeit I understand that Netflix fell on hard times as well for a period of time, you get rewarded for it. And that chasm is now being illustrated right before our very eyes. And I'll say this quickly, because Carter Braxton Worth brought this up a while ago. There was a gap in the chart up to 300 in Netflix. We said when the stock was trading 185-ish, it was probably going to get there. It did, and we said it would pull back to 250. 
take a look at your little Google machine there and see where that sucker traded down to the other day. So this, to me, yeah. is a great entry point for Netflix on the back of this huh. Disney quarter. All right, so after everything we just said about Disney and everyone's yeah. so negative on it, you, know, like you want to be positive on Netflix. And so, I mean, I guess what, what I would just say is this. I'm new to this. I don't own the stock, okay? It's back to 2014 lows, essentially, if it gets down you know, to those marshals. We spend a lot of time you know, talking about this tidbit, that tidbit. I'm telling you, five years from now, you won't remember this point in time, okay? And so like, l- this is coming from a guy who remains bearish. I think the market bottoms lower. I'm still bearish on the, on the economy here, the global economy, that too. But if you're looking for generational opportunities and names that aren't going away, this you're kind it. of starting to get them. That's kind of the point in some of these Netflix days. and Disney. Well, uh, well uh, not Netflix, Disney. Disney. And, and Disney. what I'm saying is, and so like, we all have to start dollar cost averaging into something no one's ever going to nail the bottom in any of this. Right, stuff. and if you are long-term and you can wait out a, a three-year malaise or another 10% or 20% lower, uh, 100%. Another what 10 we, to 20% lower on mean, Disney mean, specifically? Or, or any or stock, meaning what okay. Dan's saying is if, if you're thinking out five, right. six, seven sure. years you and you that. think it's value at this point, value investors are always early. That's why they call them value traps. Now, sometimes there's such a bad trap the thing goes out of business. That's a real trap. Sometimes they turn, but you have to start at But some not point. this mouse trap. Not this mouse trap. Now, it is important to say right now we are breaching the lows. It's happening as we speak. We're now at 89. It's not good price action. And then finally, remember, debt is a bad thing. Uh, Too much of it anyway. Disney doubled its debt, right, in the last four or five years. Uh, That is an issue. Yeah. Jeff, is that a concern for you? Look, I'm trying to make choices between being long the market and and where do I want to be. And Mm -hmm. to Dan's point in thinking about what that long-term trajectory looks like, if I'm looking at a stock like Disney with all of the negativity that we're talking about, I think we are overlooking some of the positives here. And at 17 or 18 times next year's earnings, with the growth prospects that I still think exist with the business, you know, I would rather be buying into a stock like that here than, say, the broad market. You know, given the fact that, again, I am too bearish overall, I think you have to try to pick your spots. And I think this could be one of them as we approach what is likely a longer term bottom, even if we do have another 10 plus percent on the downside. All right. We'll keep you posted all on Disney as the conference call continues. Meantime, coming up, retail reform shares of calls surging after CEO shakeup. What the exit could mean for the stock next, plus a big bump for one biotech name. Amgen on the move after some drug trial updates. We'll find out what had investors flocking in when Fast Money returns. Back in two. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customer 
customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Coles topping the tape today after announcing CEO Michelle Gass will step down on December 2nd. Shares of the company jumping on the news before closing more than 7% higher. Gass is moving over to Levi Strauss, where she will become president in January. But what will this mean for the company that she is leaving? Well, investors are happy it's higher by 7%. Jeff Mills, you've been looking into this. Yeah, I mean, they're happy for now. I mean, the board was refreshed, what, like a year ago, and it's continued to lag its peers. So I think leadership shakeup at the top is probably inevitable. But so here's the good news. It's cheap at eight times earnings relative to its history. It's still 40 percent below its 200 days. So I think you could have some momentum just because the stock's oversold. But it's really been dead money for about 20 years, typically trading between that 40 and $70 level. So again, it's quite a bit below that. But I think with a lot of these retail companies, and I've said this before, what they're doing is they're passing along higher prices to consumers and they're masking falling unit demand. So I think that's exactly what's going on here. So you have these nominal sales numbers that look pretty good. These companies aren't firing people. So the labor market remains strong. That keeps the Fed completely locked in. And then when you have pricing power fade and demand really declines, I think it creates even more of a problem. And the last thing I'll say, I think just because it's a great example, and it's a stock we always talk about, but Amazon, for example. So nominal sales, 14% above pre-COVID trend. Real sales, inflation-adjusted sales, have now fallen back to that pre-COVID trend. Their workforce is still 20% above that pre-COVID trend. So those are the dynamics going on in retail right now. And I think that continues. And, and you want to be defensive, the Walmarts, the Dollar Gens of the world. You know, it's interesting. For Levi's, this seems like a really good hire when you think about how difficult it is for brands navigating this kind of, um, you know, Jeff just mentioned Amazon. I mean, Amazon's a big customer of Levi's. Walmart's a, oh, nearly a 10% customer. Kohl's was nearly a 4% customer. It seems like a, probably a good hire for a company like that trying to ne- negotiate or, or navigate this changing retail environment with bricks and mortar and having this kind of barbell approach. What do they call it when you, when you bury the lead? Bury the lead. They call it that. It's odd that they would call it that. Here's the lead. They guided higher for the third quarter, and operating margins were better, 4.7%. This stock should be higher, to Jeff Mills' point. Now, we'll attribute it to the CEO transition. I get it, but that's not entirely the story. So here's a stock that's probably going to see, I don't know, 16% or so EPS growth, trading at a trough multiple, an environment where stocks like this can go up 15 20% on nothing, I think you can own Kohl's here. So Jeff Mills says it's been dead money. A guy makes it seem like it's just simply been fallow, to use a term that oh, Carter yeah. uses. Oh, there it is. So, which there is it? How much so, is so this it? is a game no, specifically for Carter worth <laughs> right. dead money or, or fallow. fallow. Well, <laughs> something about being dead, of course, is dead, whereas fallow has potential if right, you exactly. make use of something that's like a fallow field. In any event, here's the issue. I mean, three, four, five months ago, the street said this company would earn $7.00 next year. Now they think it's going to earn $3. The problem with the numerator-denominator game, P-E ratio, is if your denominator is collapsing like that, is it ever cheap? This stock is the exact same price it was in August of 1998. Jeff referred to that. Uh, And its relative peak to all consumer discretionary stocks was in 
in, in 2000. It's just, why bother? So it's dead money, not fallow. Uh, okay. I would go with dead money. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's how you play game. the game. We, it's a good game. I just made it up. What it's, would be the graphics for, for that game, though? Like a, like I a, don't know. Like a headstone for dead, dead money and then well, like a plow like a, for yeah, fallow? Yeah, a brown field that has potential if something comes to life. And dead it's not very visual. Yeah. Um, we'll think like, about it. Coming up, bio bump. Shares of Amgen on the rise as drug trial updates make headlines. And the move is options traders getting a pulse on the space. The name we're watching next plus one crypto coin losing more than 70% of its value just today. What drove the move and what it means for the man once thought to be crypto's savior? You're watching Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Amgen hitting a fresh all-time high today after presenting encouraging phase one data for its obesity drug to the American Heart Association. The drug is still in the preliminary stages, but the stock is up nearly 30 percent this year. Guy. Buying on hope now. But listen, this is a, to me, this is still a valuation story despite this move. It's still an earnings story. It's still a company with an extraordinarily robust pipeline. You add in a potential home run in obesity drug and you got a stock that continues to go higher but we've been saying this seemingly for the last 10 years on this show that for whatever reason amgen doesn't get the love it deserves until recently now you're going to start to see analysts raise their numbers that's when the, you know remember that show lost in space warning will robin you know remember that warning will robin the robot well now you're getting into the warning will robinson phase of amgen with that said the stock is still cheap at these levels it's, I think it's fantastic. First of all, Ooh, price fantastic. action like this, just on one day alone, tells you a lot. You might have a long-term chart here. If there ever were something that could be described as north by northeast, mm. higher, steadily higher, never gets extended, what's not to like? I think that's what Amgen's chart is. Does this fall in the category of godlike chart? Yes, it does. Yeah, but you're not a buyer. But you're not a buyer here. So, so here, here, here's let's talk about it. It's all about your time frame. Do we chase something that's just broken out? If you're a short-term trader, no. If you're a long-term player, this makes it even better. The fact that it jumped just now on news, when a stock gaps up, it actually gets cheaper, and when a stock gaps down, it gets more expensive. Huh? Jeff Mills, what do you say to that? Godlike, it's hard to argue with. Uh, I was going to point out the chart as well. I mean, a really steady uptrend since 2015, just punching above that 260 level. So, you know, by my eye, certainly the price action is good. I talked to our analyst today that covers the stock. I, I would say his reaction was it's a hold here. He thinks maybe the move is overdone by 25 to $50. He thinks the stock has been driven, you know, largely by what we'll call this halo effect from the new weight loss drug. Um, and, and listen, Amgen's is showing good results, but it's in phase one. It's not approved yet. And if it gets there, uh, unless it's differentiated in some way, there is clearly competition, you know, whether it's Lilly, uh, Novo Nordisk, whoever it is, um, there's going to be some severe competition for these drugs. Uh, the demand is large, but again, you know, maybe the stock has already moved ahead of that. 
All right, let's stick with the pharma space here. AstraZeneca is on deck to report before the open on Thursday. That name's seeing a lot of options trading today. Mike Coe has the action. Mike? Yeah, so AstraZeneca traded almost four times its average daily put volume. The most active options were the weekly 59 strike puts, puts outpacing calls by about four to one. And right now the options market implying a move of about 3.7% by the end of the week. Uh, that's pretty much in line with just over 3% that the company's averaged over the last eight quarters. Uh, we did see a purchase of 2,500 of those puts. The buyer paid 31 cents a contract. It is possible, of course, given the fact that the stock has had more than a 12.5% run to the upside over the last couple of weeks, that somebody is hedging some of those recent gains. All right. Thanks, Mike. Mike Coe, for more Options Action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, crypto catastrophe. Prices tanking across the board as two major players join forces. The details behind the moves next, plus shares of a firm, plummeting after hours of bringing the details of the quarter when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's take a look at how the markets ended the session today. Major indices all ending in the green for a third straight day, but the action wasn't that straightforward. Take a look at the big drop in markets uh, midday. The Dow erasing nearly all of its 500-plus point gain by 230 before bouncing back. That move coincided with a steep drop in Bitcoin, both the crypto and the markets bottom at exactly the same time, which is very interesting. So how do you make sense of these moves? Jeff, what was your take? Well, I've been sort of tracking ARK and the IPO index. I'll throw Bitcoin in there as well. But I just think the idea and what's been driving the market for so long is this idea that there's going to be some pivot or some maybe new liquidity cycle. And I think generally the behavior of all those areas says, no, there's not. Um, so I don't know that that thesis holds water. And I think you'll continue to see that being a main driver going forward. So I still think that we're stuck in this 3,900 resistance 3,700 support sort of area. Look at the queues, obviously larger part of the market, closer to the lows. So I just don't think the setup is that great when you have, you know, the top of the market and Apple, a Tesla now contending with downward sloping 200 days, Tesla breaking that support at 200. I just think that it's a difficult argument to make that the market's going to all of a sudden move to new highs when you have those big parts of the market uh, struggling the way they are. Well, as, as to the market, I mean, Jeff makes all the right points. I mean, we are basically talk about dead money. The market is stuck. We're churning as individual components gap down. Some are putting on good shows, but we're not progressing. And usually that's resolved lower because you get resolved typically in the direction of the preceding move, a steep decline, a lot of churn, and then you go lower. As to crypto, though, I mean, the thing here is that Bitcoin has a June low, mid-June, just as the S&P does, and Bitcoin has never breached that low, whereas the S&P has. Oh. We're now right at that low. We went slightly below it. It's, it's not a good setup. And I, I'm on the wrong side of this one now. I was thinking we're going to base here. Yeah. I'll just say this about the market. Okay, so however the market reacts tomorrow, let's say Bitcoin is not an influential um, factor here um, you know, to the midterm result. And then we have the CPI on Thursday. And so if the market continues this rally a little bit, let's say the CPI number comes in not as hot as some people would fear, you probably have a bit of a continuation. I think Jeff makes a really good point, and Carter's been making this for weeks on where charting, is that this rotation out of mega cap, um, given the fundamental news that we've had on those major names, into other parts.
parts of the market has been really healthy. That's the S&P's outperformance over that time period. The fact that the NASDAQ 100 is so near those recent lows is actually kind of scary because if they all do go the same way, then we're going to be making new lows in the not so distant future. And don't forget, we still have a 10-year yield, 4.1%. We have crude oil hovering around 90 bucks. Yeah, the dollars come in a little bit, but it's right at that trend. Who knows here? But again, I mean, I think we don't bottom this way over the last couple of months. We're going to go from lower lows. Well, let's dig deeper into uh, the moves in crypto today. Both coins and related stocks sinking after crypto exchange Binance announced plans to buy FTX's non-U.S. business. FTX, of course, run by Sam Bankman-Fried, who's been coming to the rescue of several crypto companies this year, now finding itself in need of an investment itself. For more, let's bring in Hunter Horsley, the CEO of Bitwise Asset Management. Hunter, great to have you with us. Great to be with you all. You know, we had, uh, you know, Celsius, we had three arrows, and these were big hits in terms of confidence in the crypto markets. And I'm wondering, do you think that this is sort of like the next shoe? I mean, everybody thought SBF was, you know, the savior of the industry here, and, and he needs help himself at this point. It's a bit of an Icarus moment for the, for the space and for FTX. It's unacceptable. It's ridiculous. It's reckless. It's not good for the space. And it is another shoe in a year that has had quite a few blowups and and uh, and issues in the crypto space. So I think it's definitely a, a, a bad moment. It sounds like you think this should have never happened. And so in Binance, buying the non-U.S. assets, are we setting ourselves up? Are, are we seeing sort of the continuation of this concentration, I don't want to say of power, but maybe of assets in the crypto industry that maybe is dangerous to the industry itself? Well, I think that the, the, the broader trend that I'm hopeful investors are taking away from this year, last year, I think a lot of investors said, I want to invest, and they didn't care so much how they did it, what platform they used or what partner they used. This year, a lot of investors have been burned. And I think that there's a growing awareness from investors that you need to be thoughtful about the platform or the partner, the professional management, the track record, et cetera. So I think that there will be learnings from this, and investors will have a preference for platforms that... Uh, that have a, a track record and professionalism that they can be more comfortable with. What's your outlook for crypto itself in terms of let, let's just pick Bitcoin? Um, it's so tied up in, the, in what is going on externally around it, um, and, it's, and it's being pulled down by it. And so where do you see it going here? I think the story, the story of this year for crypto is that it, as a liquid asset class, it's, it's part of the same liquidity being removed from the system alongside everything else. It's down 60% this year. Qs are down 30%. Uh, innovation, in some cases, down 70%. So I think it's, it's part of that story. Now, underneath the hood, I think that the story of this year for crypto has been unbelievably positive. And you've seen a steady drumbeat of institutions embracing the space, fintech companies embracing it, developers coming in. So we're very constructive on it and optimistic. But uh, the, the, the macro tailwind has, uh, has been an overhang on the space. So I think as that loosens up, uh, there's there's a lot of opportunity in the crypto space coming out of this year. It feels nice to, to think about, you know, these investors going in and all the all the positive things that you listed. But the fact of the matter is, if you're an investor in Bitcoin, you're suffering losses at this point And the chart doesn't look any good, according to our technical analyst sitting here on the desk with us tonight. Um, and so what is the case that you you make to people to say, you know, it, you should buy Bitcoin or maybe you think that you should not buy Bitcoin right now? It is still too early because it certainly seems like it is too early. It's not moving on all these optimistic developments that you're painting for the industry. Yeah. So historically, we don't have a ton of history in crypto, but over the last 12 years, there have been four-year cycles, three years of bull market, 
one year of bear market. We've, we've been in the space for five years, and so we've, we've seen two of those bear markets now. And this year, we've seen clients coming into the space, some who want to take advantage of the cost basis, who think that the, the potential is there and compelling and see it as an opportunity. Uh, this year for us, our, our client base has actually uh, doubled amidst everything happening in the market. So there are some that are definitely constructive, and I think it's a matter of sizing. If somebody's in the space already and has 30% of their assets allocated to crypto, it's a very difficult time. Our clients, which are professional investors, financial advisors, institutions, are generally sizing at 50 basis points to 500 and expected volatility. I think this year the surprise to them was actually more on the fixed income side or the equity side. And certainly crypto is volatile too, but part of what they thought they were signing up for. So uh, many of them believe that the, the upside case is still here. And so I think are constructive on it and thinking about timing. Hunter, I don't think it's coincidental that Bitcoin topped out just as our Federal Reserve pivoted back in November. And the fact that Bitcoin has not been able to get off the mat since that time effectively says that this becomes just a central bank play. So is it as simple as that? If global central banks flinch or blink or whatever dumb word people want to use, that's when Bitcoin takes the next leg higher? I think it's definitely part of the story. Crypto is not bigger or separate from uh, those considerations. But I think you saw an interesting thing last week, for example, with the hawkish comments coming out of the FOMC meeting and crypto was higher last week. So there are different drivers in this space and there's a lot of positive development underneath the hood. And so I think that uh, the space is, is rearing to, to, uh, to separate from the macro backdrop, but of, of course continues to be, be impacted by it. Hunter, great to speak with you. Thank you. Great to see you. Hunter Horsley, uh, a bitwise. Uh, Coinbase was one that really suffered on today's news, down by more than 10 percent. And it had to actually come out later in the day saying that it has no exposure to FTX, it has no exposure to the FTT coin, um, and yet it was still down. Yeah, and that doesn't really matter because all of these exchanges have their own stable coins, and we've had numerous issues with it. You started this whole conversation off by saying the guy who's been saving all of these other institutions that had leverage and were using their own stable coins as collateral in in their operations. So sooner or later, you know, it's going to get around to Binance, too, because I think a lot of investors don't trust the collateral that are supposedly backing some of these um, stable coins. I'll just say this about the price of Bitcoin. I was really surprised that the Nasdaq you know, moved or the market in general moved in lockstep with Bitcoin because I don't know about you guys. I'm not watching it a whole heck of a lot. It really is not impacting too many things that I'm doing in the markets. That does tell you, though, again, that a lot of investors in a lot of different asset classes have their finger on the trigger here. Yeah, I would submit he 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 evoked Icarus, which was fantastic. Yes. So I would submit that Carter Braxton Worth has been the didalis of this entire thing, warning Icarus not to fly too close to the sun because you see what happens. And maybe the rest of us are just the collective minotaurs in this well, entire thing. However, however, that strength in Ethereum over the last two, three weeks, uh, that and I put something out to clients saying, I think you probably should cover shorts. So uh, I'm on the wrong side of this now. Have I been bearish a long time? Yes. But it, right now, I, I'm, I'm on the wrong side. So what to do? I would just flip it around and get short again. The thing looks like it's going to break, and it's all about sequencing. This is no different than any other asset. All assets make lows in June. Everything rallies, and then many have come back to their June lows and undercut it, which is going to happen in Disney tomorrow. Bitcoin is about to do that. Coming up, shares of a firm sinking after reporting results. The details on that quarter next. Plus, marijuana and midterms, the founder and executive chairman of Cureleaf, joins us to talk about the states voting for legalization. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert for you on a firm. Shares are plunging down 17% after the buy now, pay later company posting a bigger than expected loss and gave weak guidance. Let's bring in Kate Rooney to uh, dive into the numbers. Kate. Hey, Melissa, that's right. A firm's weak guidance had a lot to do with Peloton. Executives lowered the full year outlook, citing slower growth at one of its biggest partners. I caught up with the firm's CFO, Michael Linford. He said, it's a heck of a lot of headwinds from one partner, as he put it, and says if you strip out Peloton, the growth numbers tend to look a lot better. For example, a firm is guiding to 31% gross merchandise volume growth. That would be closer to 40%. If you're not looking at Peloton, he says that Peloton concentration begins deconcentrating for revenue. In the back half of this year, Peloton made up about 2% of gross merchandise volume. In the last quarter that we're looking at, that's down from about 18% couple of years ago. And then there's interest rates. So Linford called that an undeniable headwind. He said the peak rate has moved about 150 basis points between now and the last guide. High volatility is pushing spreads up. He said that makes it uh, the near-term navigation of this debt market difficult. CEO Max Levchin on the call that's going on right now saying that they're seeing low levels of delinquencies right now, which is a bright spot. He said those levels are still trending in line with pre-COVID levels of losses. The buy now, pay later company also reaffirmed its profitability goals. That's not going to be until fiscal year 2024, though, Melissa. I don't think deconcentrating is even a real word, Kate. (laughs) And and they're throwing that around like it's a thing. I mean, isn't the bigger issue that it's just going to, uh, it's probably going to just lose a lot of those Peloton transactions that will, will not come back? I mean, the forecast for that one partner is not, not great. So it's got that and then the headwinds of what's going on with the rates. Well, and the Peloton partnership tends to bring in a high credit quality, higher net worth customer that tends to be more profitable for Peloton and tends to pay their loans back. So it's a really strong partner for a firm in the good times. Um, And that was seen as a bright spot for a long time, but they're trying to move towards that revenue concentration. So even though um, it's a small part of the gross merchandise volume, it tends to make up a bigger part of revenue because it has been pretty profitable for them. But they also have an Amazon and Shopify uh, partnership, which we'll see if that can sort of offset, but they're trying to uh, deconcentrate, <laughs> as you put it. Right. Uh, no, not not my word at all. <laughs> Kate, thank you, Kate Rooney. As you put it, yeah, not you, <laughs> um, Jeff Mills, what do you make of a firm? Yeah, so we mentioned credit quality a couple of times, right? And it looks okay now, but we all know that the Fed is going to induce some pain in the labor market. So I think some deterioration in credit quality should be the base case at this point. Uh, And and I think that's really the issue. Profitability is nowhere in sight. We keep talking about that as being a problem in this market. So I would certainly rather own, you know, say a SoFi at two times sales with a much clearer path to profitability, at least certainly happening much sooner than, than something like a firm in this market. Coming up, pot at the polls. Several states voting on cannabis legalization today. Curly founder and executive chairman Boris Jordan will join us with what it could mean for the space. That interview when Fast Money returns. Do not miss CNBC's election night special, Business on the Ballot. That's tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The business topics at play in the midterms and how the results could impact your money. That is right here on CNBC. And speaking of election night, pot making its way on five ballots today. Voters in Arkansas, Maryland, Missouri, North and South Dakota weighing in on whether to legalize recreational use of marijuana. Our next guest says he's never seen more bipartisan agreement on cannabis. Let's bring in Cure Leaf Executive Chairman Boris Jordan. The company reported earnings last night. Boris, great to see you again. Great to be here, Melissa. Thanks. 
Um, in terms of the elections, obviously there, there's, uh, you know, control of Congress is at play. And then there's also these five states voting on recreational marijuana. Which one, which elections will, will impact your business more? Well, I think both are, are very impactful. I think we're going to get at least four of those five states that will approve uh, adult use cannabis. That'll bring us to 23 states. If all five states, it'll be 24 states. Basically, almost 50% of the country states will have access to adult use cannabis and 40 states in the whole country with medical or adult use. And, and as far as the, the Congress goes, I, I personally believe that whichever way this goes, whether it's a split uh, between the House and the Senate, or whether the Republicans sweep, the states, the, the, the Safe Banking Act is making huge progress right now with the bipartisan support for both Republicans and Democrats. We're as confident as we've ever been, that we're as close as we've ever been to getting fundamental legislation around the industry. Um, in terms of those four states that will legalize marijuana, how impactful is that for you in terms of revenue? Well, well, for two of two of those states, uh, Cureleaf is a big player. In, in, in Maryland, we have about a 15% share in that market. So that going adult use will obviously quite be quite substantial. North Dakota, much smaller state, but we have a 50% market share there. That going adult use will have a less of an impact, but still nonetheless quite substantial for the overall business. And these days, you know, every state that's added does add growth to our business, especially with New York and Connecticut likely to go live next year. Um, how do you how do you navigate, though, what faces any other business out there? And that is, you know, rising input costs, rising energy costs, rising labor costs in terms of in terms of margins, Boris, and also, you know, a potential just recession, a potential, you know, deeper slowdown in the economy. So we are definitely feeling a little bit of an impact. We did have a, a record quarter. We just announced yesterday we did $340 million. We're up 1% sequentially on last quarter and 7% year on year. Um, our margins, however, were up, you know, 220 basis points over last year. Uh, and um, and so we're feeling quite good as an industry. Our industry is quite resilient. But what we're seeing is, is that customers are coming in more often and they're tending to buy slightly cheaper products than they were last year. And so we're definitely feeling it at this point, but it's not as profound as other industries. Cannabis is becoming a stable product, a product that customers want. And what they're doing is they're just trading down to a slightly cheaper product at the moment. Just like what you do with the detergent or toilet paper. <laughs> you do it with marijuana. Uh, Boris, thank you. Always good to see you. It's great to be here. Thanks. Boris Jordan of Cureleaf. Up next, Final Trades. Last check on the earnings movers we've been tracking uh, this hour off its lows, uh, but still down 7.5%. We've got Disney there, 92.47 uh, is a level. Affirm Holdings, that's down 17.7%. And Lucid, this is one we didn't get to tonight, but it is down um, as well by 11.5%. Big moves. Uh, time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Jeff Mills. So, Glencore, here's another stock. It's been dead money since the IPO. Now, my vocabulary is not as good as Carter's, so I'll say I think it has potential. The chart is showing some signs of life. I would uh, I'd take a look at this one. In other words, it's fallow. Yes. Uh, 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 that's right. <laughs> Carter. Well, speaking of something that's been fallow for a long time and dead money is gold, and it is showing all the signs of perking up. Gold, GLD, and GDX. Own them. Dan Nathan. Yeah, I agree with the general Jeff Mills. He made that comment about SoFi relative to an affirm. And, and I really like this. This is one I bought actually recently here. And it's trying to bottom here in and around five bucks of SoFi. 
Guy Dami. Fun group tonight. Super fun. Soupy Always Dumpson. fun. It's so handsome in person. And a big Netflix. keyboard. A big keyboard. <laughs> Huge. Anyway, keyboard. literally. Yeah. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.